Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hi, I'm Bob Shrum, uh, and welcome to another edition of Election R&D with my co-director at the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future, my friend and my sometimes opponent, Mike Murphy. Uh, We're here to discuss the vice presidential debate with a great guest, Karen Finney, uh, who was the spokesperson for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, the communications director for vice presidential nominee Tim Kaine, the first black spokesperson for the Democratic National Committee and a CNN political commentator. As usual, a shout out to our partners at the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival, to another great friend, Jamie Cabler, and to Deborah Chu. And we're pleased to have all of our guests at Trojan Family Weekend uh, who have signed up here. And I should tell you that Karen went to UCLA. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll talk for 35 minutes or so. And then we'll open it up to questions, which you can put in the chat feature of Zoom. Let's start by just going around the horn. Uh, Who won the debate last night? Kamala Harris, Mike Pence, or The Fly? Karen? Well, The Fly did steal the show. That is for for sure. You know, CNN did a a poll, uh, an immediate after poll, and it showed Kamala Harris won quite decisively, not surprisingly. And she won by something like 37 points with women and about two points uh, with men. I mean, the numbers were bigger than that, but that's the margin. I frankly thought she did an excellent job. Uh, She did exactly what she needed to do, which was uh, to offer uh, a clear contrast between the Biden plan and, uh, and what we've seen in the last four years of Trump. And I'll tell you the other thing that I thought, even before, I, mean, I think her first answer was just stunningly, um, it was excellent and well executed on COVID. And, I, and you could tell that had a tough time coming back from it. But the very fact that you had two presidential candidates on a stage separated by plexiglass illustrated that COVID and the failures of this administration were front and center. I mean, there was no getting around that. Anytime you saw a two shot, it was, like I say, front and center. Uh, and, and frankly, the plexiglass almost, I would say, was another character uh, on the stage. <laughs> Mike? Well, I thought the fly showed tremendous poise and a, and a command of the issues that made the, I think the fly could have won the presidential debate. I'm already on report from the, the pundits union for violating principle 101, which is treat every day in the campaign like the most important day ever, uh, because I thought the debate didn't really matter. It's a vice presidential debate. It's a sideshow. Uh, traditionally, uh, uh, since Quayle Benson, and Quayle was still on the winning ticket there, we haven't really had a vice presidential debate that meant much. So the question I had before this debate, knowing that history of VP debates, uh, was, will anything change in the race? And where the race was before is Donald Trump's losing. He's losing because he's in a battle for men with Joe Biden that's close, and he's getting slaughtered with women, uh, particularly college-educated suburban women. So did anything happen in that debate to change that outcome for Trump? And the answer is no. So Joe Biden won the debate because nothing strategically happened to you know, matter in the campaign. Now, for us junkies, if we dive into the actual debate, um, as kind of low stakes as it, it turned out to be, um, I kind of scored a bit of a draw. I, th- I thought Kamala Harris was shaky in the first half. I think Pence blitzed her and kind of got away with it for a while. And I thought Pence prosecuted the economic issues pretty well, which is what the Republicans wish the campaign was about. The problem, as Karen said, is there was a lot of plexiglass there uh, and, you know, a lot of distance between the candidates and not many people in the audience to remind everybody that in the center of the campaign is COVID, which is, you know, a nightmare for the president. He's really been running against COVID and losing now for six months. I, I will give, and I've been a Harris critic. She was not, in my view, the best political choice for VP, but she rallied in the second half with a few good moments in the first half. I'll, I'll give her that and did very, very well. 
And by then, Pence, who you could see, knows he's on a losing ship. So his thoughts are, one, will Trump yell at me after the debate? And two, where's the life preserver? He kind of ran out of energy. And his aggressive style that was kind of old school debate 101 didn't fit the strategic reality of the campaign, which is women hate his candidate. And we're in a world now where everything is viewed through identity and gender lenses. And so a lot of the coverage afterward was that Pence was kind of a mansplaining pain in the neck by the second half of it. So whatever tactical points he kind of scored by being aggressive and moving it to the economy once in a while, were really hurt by that. Last thing I'd say, uh, so I thought Kamala Harris did fine. And at the end, better than fine. She won the soundbite war, which you care about in a minor debate like this, because it's what's on the news that'll break through, because she had a, a very strong line. I think some people resonated to the basically the, uh, you know, shut up, Pence, I'm speaking here, uh, which was not the words, but the intent. I think that played well to a lot of people who are already, you know, happily on the Biden train. But she had the line about if you have a pre-existing condition, they're coming for you which was a good, powerful debate line that resonated because the Democrats, just like Pence would love to talk about the economy, they'd love to talk about the threat to pre-existing conditions under the kind of mysterious, what is it, phantom Trump health plan. So net, net, good night for Biden because not enough changed. I will say there was one piece of news left behind, which was big, which is for some reason, the Biden campaign and the Harris, the Harris, Biden-Harris campaign has a strategy of very transparently ducking the hell out of the packing the Supreme Court question, which only raises the stakes for the next time Biden's asked it. And I think they're making a political mistake by not just knocking that down. Instead, they're growing kind of a sideshow issue. Uh, and I, I thought she ducked it pretty obviously too. I'm sure that's the strategy, but I think that's a bad strategy. And I think neither of them have profited from that. And it's a live issue. Now. Yeah, I actually think that it's a total sideshow, that people don't care about it. It's not top of mind. The press cares about it. The Beltway cares about it. And I thought she had a great response when she said they're the ones who are packing the courts. Uh, of all the 50 uh, judges they've nominated to circuit courts of appeals, not one is African-American. Uh, I, I do sort of agree, Mike, that uh, nothing changed because, but this was potentially a very important debate. Trump needed a lot here to begin to turn the trajectory of 2020. <clears throat> if you recall in 2012, after Barack Obama belly flopped into an empty pool in the first presidential debate, Joe Biden had a pretty strong performance against Paul Ryan and that helped. But Trump didn't get anything like that here. And Kamala Harris, I think, was at ease, persuasive, personable, and authentic. Uh, the other thing I agree with you on is this question about women. Uh, Pence was no Trump, but he was obnoxious in the way he dealt with Harris uh, and with the moderator, Susan Page. Uh, I'm speaking will be the most memorable line of the debate. You're right. Uh, and the other line that will be remembered was the one Susan Page said over and over again. Vice President Pence, thank you. Vice President Pence, thank you. I think suburban women will recoil from that. And I think it goes beyond identity politics. It goes to the way a lot of women feel they have been treated over the years. And Trump's already in deep trouble with them. Now, Trump this morning called Harris, called into Fox to Maria Bar Bartiromo and called Harris a monster. And then four times he called her a communist. And he demanded that Attorney General Barr indict Hillary Clinton. Then he said he wouldn't participate in the virtual debate next Thursday. Is there a strategy here? Or as I think, is he just venting and bullying out of frustration as the walls seem to be closing in on him? Mike, you can go first if you want. I just Okay, I'll, and I'll be quicker this time. One, I do disagree. The, the court thing will never be the center of the race but it's a clear and easy enough issue. To, it's going to grab attention now, and the stakes keep raising. I think the Biden campaign can snuff it up by answering it. They won't lose the campaign if they say, no, I'm not going to stuff the Supreme Court. They're disappointed a few progressives, but the day that all of a sudden Oakland flips to Donald Trump is the day I will grow wings and fly to the moon. So I, I just think they're, that, that I, I, brushing it off, I think, is a mistake because it'll get bigger next week, and they don't need that. Uh, to your point about Pence's tone, 
I agree. As far as Trump's concerned, no, the steroids are talking. There's no strategy. He, everything he does is just react to cable TV, and he's, he knows he's losing. He's thrashing away. He's trying to find a hook. He's going to try to force himself onto the campaign trail next week, God help him, or God help anybody stuck in a pressurized airplane with him. Um, you know, so you're watching him wiggle on the hook now. Now, look, we, we got because of early voting, election day is now, as we all know, two weeks long. But there's still a window here where Trump desperately needs something to happen. And again, the debate was, I don't think there's any way Mike Pence can save Donald Trump. Just like I don't think the election is about Kamala Harris, who most people still don't have any idea who she is outside of politics. This thing is Trump versus COVID versus Biden. And every day Trump does something to lose it. That's the reality of the race. And this morning, more of that. So let me just offer a counter uh, perspective that what one of the things that mattered greatly to um, a, a voting block that is the most reliable voting block, and we have been shown as black women to be able to change the outcomes of elections for black women and men, but particularly black women, seeing Kamala Harris, the first black and Indian American woman sitting on that stage at that table as a vice presidential nominee of the ticket was historic, it was emotional, it was powerful, and we know who she is. And, it, and for black voters who are gonna be critical to this election, we know that Donald Trump is trying to chip away at the margins, it was very significant. And it was a big sense of, of pride. And, and Bob is exactly right, I mean, for so many women, what, you know, that interrupting, we actually, I'm doing some work with Vote for Her, and uh, we've got a video coming out that shows it was about 40 times between his interrupting of Susan Page and uh, Senator Harris. And, you know, the way women experience that in daily life is you don't care what I have to say. You don't believe that what I have to say is important. And whereas I think on the one hand, it was in part a strategy and a tactic. We've all prepped candidates for debates. Of course, you run down the time, but the way he ran over Susan Page and, and, and in instances really egregiously interrupted Senator Harris when it was her time to speak even, I think really did not sit well with women. But more importantly, it, to my mind, it showed a level of desperation because that is not the same Mike Pence. I helped Senator Kane prep for his debate with Mike Pence in 2016. This was a different guy. Granted, he had, you know, his boss at home hopped up on steroids watching and he knew he had to deliver. But, you know, usually Pence's style is he'll, he's very good at sticking to talking points, but he'll do it with a smile or a grin. That, we didn't see much of that last night. It was a, he had a mission and he was, he was going at it. Now, part of the reason I think there was a bit of a strategy to what the president said this morning is that it actually started last night with very old sexist, racist tropes about whether or not she was likable. On Fox News last night, Brett Baer asked the panel, was she likable? I'm pretty sure they did not do that after the Trump Biden debates, right? And it's a question that never gets asked about male candidates. And, you know, it was asked about Hillary all the time. And in the beginning of the primaries, when people started to raise that question about Elizabeth Warren, I think you saw women in particular jump in and say, nope, we're not having that this time. So that likability question, and then, you know, there was the president going on calling her a monster. There were others on the airwaves who said things far that I can't really, I probably could repeat on streaming, but I won't, calling her an insufferable lying, you know what, um, and worse. And so I think what is a calculated piece of that is there is a strategy on the right wing to make her out to be you know, uber liberal, California, radical, but also the othering, the birtherism, which we've seen make a very ugly comeback. And some other comments about her uh, that we've seen making its way in right wing um, circles that are all meant to demean, degrade, and undermine this woman in part as a distraction, I believe, and still, they still don't have an answer <laughs> about pre-existing conditions. They still don't have, he did not really have much of an answer around COVID. So, it, you know, this is part of the Trump playbook to make it about personality traits and distract from policy because they can't have, as you said, uh, Mike, the economic conversation that they'd really like to be having right now. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I agree that it's just 
uh, you know, the steroids that are driving Trump. Uh, you know, some of what he says, like a virtual debate is no debate. I mean, the third Kennedy-Nixon debate in 1960 was remote. Uh, Nixon was in Los Angeles, Kennedy was in New York, and the moderator was in Chicago, and they had a split screen. Uh, but Trump gave away what he was concerned about when he said, well, you know, that doesn't let me do what I want to do in the debate. So he clearly wants to do what he did before. I think this is a reaction to, as I put it earlier, the walls closing in on him. I mean, when he's behind 16 points in the CNN poll, 14 points in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. This morning in our poll, he's behind by 11, the USC Dornsife poll. And that's been rising. And then you have polls coming out in some of the battleground states. Uh, Quinnipiac yesterday, Florida, 11, uh, nine points, which I don't believe. I don't believe it's that big. Pennsylvania, seven points, and Iowa, five points. So I think he's reacting to that and also to the stories that have uh, been all over the place the last 24 hours about GOP donors deciding that they're not going to put their money into the presidential campaign. They're going to try to shift to saving some Senate seats. And you see the Trump campaign scaling back its TV buys, not just in Ohio, for example, but in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. So I think that's why he's reacting that way. I think he's, I think he's just terribly frustrated. Oh, yeah, wouldn't you be? <laughs> yeah, they're out of money. They're broke. They are broke. There's no strategy to pulling the TV. They, they're, they're out of money. They're, they have no television in Florida after the 16th of October. My guess is they're scrape a little money together and get something going. They've got third-party groups out there. But he's reading polls he doesn't like. He is furious that Biden is now clearly beating him. The media, which, of course, is massively impartial about Trump, seems to be treating him a little roughly lately. Um, on every front of, of every input to Trump, it's bad. And so, like the child he is, he's screaming and yelling. And, you know, it, it's just that's why this election, for all its craziness, has become quite boring. It's been the same pattern now for 15. I know everybody says, oh, no, there's an October surprise. I mean, the election, the numbers moving states going from one column to another, all the traditional stuff that makes a close-fought election terrifying and fun if you're involved in it, there's none of that. It's just there'll be a Trump antic every day. There'll be a huge media beat up on Trump, most of it with justification, uh, and there'll be a celebration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And, you know, we're on Groundhog Day. We get to go through that every day. Uh, and then occasionally there'll be a little bit of Republican offense or a Democratic stumble. And then there's a massive panic among the Democratic donor class for about 24 hours. And then a new poll comes out and everybody calms down. So I, I get that it's turbulent, crazy, bizarre campaign, exhaustingly so. But fundamentally, it's been a locked race now for two months. And it's kind of boring because it's pretty easy to see where it's going. It is interesting that the president has never led Biden in a single reputable poll since 2017. I mean, it's been, it's been steady. I think, you know, something you've said before, Mike, and I don't, I don't want to steal it, but I will. Uh, <laughs> basically, since Trump got elected, Republicans have been losing race after race after race, losing seats in state houses, yeah. losing governorships, losing control of legislatures, uh, taking a shellacking in 2018. Uh, but Karen, if you want to add something to that, go ahead. And then I want to pull this back to the vice presidential debate. Sure, sure. No, look, I, I think that's right. I will just say, because I have the scars of 2016, you know, to prove it. And I also worked on Stacey Abrams' race. I was an advisor to her race in 2018. So uh, my, I agree with Mike, and I think I would love to have him talk to some of those big Democratic Party donors who, you know, start, you know, getting all a flutter every once in a while and say, that's why we have to stick to the fundamentals. It is about turnout, right? In this election, particularly given what we're seeing from the president in terms of voter suppression tactics, it, this is going to be, as always, a turnout uh, election. Um, and so I, I think the, it's true. And that, to my mind, is where a lot of the drama is. I think what, will be, what is dramatic about this election is that it's not going to be over on election day. Um, the phalanx of lawyers on both sides are already prepared and efforts are already, you know, gearing up for what, what we know will be um, quite a battle. So again, this is an unprecedented election in a very unprecedented situation. And look, we also don't know, I mean, in terms of October surprise, 
it, we don't know. It, it could be another, you know, round of COVID. We just don't know what is what can happen. And so, again, I just I, polls make me nervous until we polls. <laughs> I don't believe a thing, even though I do polling myself. I'm do, we're doing some polling work for Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. I'm always dubious until you know the election is called. Mike, I want to give you a chance to weigh in here because you have one way that you say this could be an election night, that we would know by midnight or two or three in the morning or four in the morning who had been elected. Uh, you want to explain that? Yeah, if you get into the, you know, kind of boring but vital mechanics of the whole thing. So many states have an antiquated process where they're, the clerks are not allowed to start counting absentee ballots to election day, in some cases after the polls close, like seven or eight at night. Now, what that means is in this election where more and more people are voting early or by absentee by mail because of COVID, polling place worries, all that, there are going to be a hell of a lot of absentee ballots. This could be the first presidential election where more than half the vote is cast absentee. Now, we're used to that in California, but it's a new thing in some other states like Pennsylvania. So what does it mean? Well, it means many of these states, some of them important, like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, are going to take several days at least to count the absentee ballots. The Michigan and Wisconsin clerks can't start till election day. Pennsylvania has historically been a low absentee ballot state. They got a, they've changed the law, but there are some challenges. So that creates a week where troublemakers, be they a roid raging president or Russian internet intelligence services, Iranians or others can come are all fraudulent. They've all been forged. You know, you can't trust them. They're secretly printing them now in underground warehouses controlled by Antifita and Bob Shrum. You know, they're going to have a lot of <laughs> goo out there. And we know that one is true, by the way, internet. Um, so, so anyway, it's a big problem. However, here's the bright spot. Some states count in more or less real time, you know, mid-October on, as the absentees come in. One of those states is Florida. Another is Ohio. Two critical states. No Republican has won the presidency without Ohio ever. None have won Florida, excuse me, won the presidency without Florida in 96 years. We will have pretty good, it is likely, highly likely, we will have pretty good idea of about how 95% of the vote in both Florida and Ohio, it'll be counted by, say, breakfast the night after the election, maybe before. Florida is pretty competent in absentee ballots, despite their reputation for chads and everything from 20 years ago. So if Florida goes to Joe Biden, which most polling, including some of our secret polling that we're doing at Arbeck, because we're doing a large campaign there, um, that's pretty damn good because at one o'clock in the morning, it's, if, if he's carried Florida, it's highly unlikely uh, Trump can make it up in other places without carrying states that there's really no chance he can carry. The other state, Ohio, Biden's ahead in Ohio. Trump's run out of money. He's got very little television there, just a few allied groups. And Biden just wisely, in my view, rather than chasing Texas, where he's doing some things, but he put some money into Ohio, which all the Ohio Pauls on the Democratic side, and about half the Ohio Pauls on the Republican side, think Biden can win. And so if both Ohio and Florida pop at one in the morning on election day with full or near full absentee ballots, because there always are a few military ballots coming in from overseas, but, you know, we're talking two or three percent. Um, I don't care if Pennsylvania takes seven years to count and the Michigan ballots are lost in Lake Superior, Biden's going to be president. So we should be worried about the late count, but... Ohio and Florida are going to give us a lot of news, and it could be devastating news for Trump by the morning after the election. And that should calm people down. I've also got, I'll plug something. I've got an op-ed coming out in the Washington Post saying the networks should release their absentee ballot exit polls. You know, we all know about exit polls where people vote and somebody in a white lab coat at the right precinct says, hey, how'd you vote? And there, there's challenges with that. It's very hard to do. But what people don't know is they do massive telephone surveys for the two weeks before the election asking people, are they voting absentee? That data is pretty good. It's the best exit poll data because it's an easier kind of polling. There's no reason why on election night the networks can't say, all right, here in Michigan, we won't give you an exact number. This is only a projection. But Joe Biden is leading between two and five points on the absentee ballot, which is going to be about 40% of the total ballot. We'll find out 
finally when we counted in a week. That takes a lot of the mystery out of it and calms everybody down, which I think would be a good thing. Okay, I want to come back to the vice presidential debate. And Karen, I'll, I think I'll come to you. Uh, the Trump campaign seems desperate to escape COVID. The campaign, although the president himself uh, keeps bringing it up in one way or another, uh, he now has decided that, that this experimental therapy had to cost $1.2 million if you tried to get it, and it's, they, you still can't get it. Uh, uh, that was a cure. But you observed at the beginning that all through the debate, we looked at those plexiglass screens. They were kind of vivid, nonverbal reminders of the virus. So was the sparseness of the audience. Do you think Trump, Pence succeeded, excuse me, Trump, do you think Pence succeeded in tamping down the COVID issue? Not at all. Not at all, because he, again, there was not a, I mean, he did try to defend his boss and defend the, and much with talking points that we've heard before and, and uh, you know, arguments that have been debunked about things about, you know, shutting down to, you know, China, access from China and things like that, where, you know, obviously in the context of a debate, as we know, when you prep someone, you, there's, you have to make some decisions about how much time you actually want to spend correcting your opponent. You know, let's talk about the fact that at the same time, we also had people coming from Europe and that's where, that's part of how we got the New York hotspot. So if we're going to start to play that game, right, it, it disintegrates quite quickly. So no, in fact, not. And in fact, the, you know, one of the most, uh, I think, powerful, again, in addition to the plexiglass, the president himself, you are the head, uh, you are the czar, you are the head of, you know, the COVID task force, you could not protect the president, you could not protect the White House staff. It's my understanding that members of the media are starting to come up uh, COVID positive, even more White House staffers than I think we actually knew about. So no, I don't think he did. But he, you know, here's one of the things about COVID that I think is, is powerful and part of why as a message it has really broken through. And part of why, you know, Pence would have had to come to that stage and say something new or different. Say, we're gonna approve a package, an aid, a relief package that does X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, to continue to say the things that people already don't believe that you're already losing on in, in, the, in uh, with voters was never going to change the dynamics of the race. And so, you know, again, people can see and feel in their own lives, and Kamala spoke to this, I think, quite well, that what we're being told isn't true. We all know we don't have a million dollars to go get the kind of treatment that President Trump got. We all, I mean, you know, and at the same time, and this was the other, you know, conversation that was pressed when you're talking about taking away the Affordable Care Act and people's health care. And certainly, you know, we have more than 7 million Americans who've been infected with COVID. That's a pre-existing condition. That's a pretty powerful argument for Democrats to be making on an issue where Democrats tend to have an advantage anyway. So no, I don't, I don't think he, he did. And he certainly didn't uh, seem to, in any way, shape, or form, reassure the markets. Uh, you know, I think we're still uh, in, a, in a very volatile situation with the economy as, as folks are waiting to see, and Trump is sort of, this is where I do think maybe it's the steroids, where he says we're going to, he definitely wants a package, and then he says, no, we're not, it's off, it's off till after the election, and then he just tweeted that maybe we'll do something. I mean, again, I think that volatility, again, it continues to just keep people feeling anxious about what's going to happen. And he just didn't say anything new to try to reassure us. Anytime Pence is debating COVID, the race isn't moving. You know, he can take the, the problem on COVID and make it 5% better. And he, had a, he you know, occasionally had a little of that. But it, it, it doesn't matter. It's not material. Um, campaigns, as you guys all know, is often about picking what you debate. When Pence was debating the economy, and on the offense on taxes, he was scoring a bit. I mean, the truth is Kamala Harris is one of the most liberal senators. She's got quite a record. He scored a few hits on Green New Deal and some other, you know, in my view, bad lefty Democratic ideas. But that was 10% of the debate because what was most important to people was the stuff that Pence really didn't have a lot of offense on because the COVID thing, particularly the we've done a lot of focus groups on this. And, and, and Democratic partisans all say Trump's a murderer. Um, because of COVID. Uh, Republicans all say liberal media, it's not quite as bad, you know, snowflake, snowflake. But the voters in the middle who decide the election do not blame Trump for COVID. 
which is, you know, and the advertising when you get into a lot of death counts doesn't work. They say COVID was not Trump's fault. It came here. Could have happened to any president. The problem is Trump, because he's Trump, was slow and incompetent. And that's the vulnerability. That's why he's losing. So there's no way Pence can un-Trump Trump on COVID. So every word he spent on it was just his brain trying to think, how the hell do I get back to taxes or something? But in the rules we're under now with COVID being so strong, and again, last week with this swinging from the chandelier stuff at Walter Reed, the, 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 the limo ride, putting the agents in, in danger, the Pinochet thing on the balcony, the video with the makeup, you know, Trump is just throwing logs on a bad fire. And there's like nothing Pence can do to get out of it, which is, again, why I thought the, the, the debate was interesting for us political junkies. But it, 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 everything Trump did last weekend had a thousand times the impact of this debate, which is kind of normal. Presidential elections are about, first and foremost, the president. And, you know, the country wants to fire Trump. I, I think I agree with uh, almost all of what you both have said. I do think that uh, Kamala Harris did a very good job saying over and over and over again, every time he went to taxes, he's, uh, Joe Biden is not going to raise taxes on anyone who makes more than $400,000 a year, uh, who makes less than $400,000 a year. I think she was entirely prepared for that. Now, she's going to have another star turn in the next week, potentially, and that's with the confirmation hearings on the Supreme Court nominee. Uh, the spotlight will be on her. I have a view about what role she should play. What do you guys think? I think, well, you go, Mike. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead, Karen. And then <laughs> I just finished a long bloviating answer, and I'll, I'll, I'll show the grace that we didn't see from the vice president, and I would like to hear from you. Thank you. Um, look, I think you're going to see, I mean, it's interesting, you know, going into this debate, there was speculation she was going to try to eviscerate Pence, which I always thought that was ridiculous because that was making her out to be sort of this one-dimensional type of person, which she's not, obviously. And so I also don't think you're, it's going, that what you will see is akin to the kind of, the tone, question-wise, uh, of uh, Kavanaugh. I think the role that she should play is to surface some of the concern, very specific concerns in Amy Coney Barrett's uh, record with regard to health care and Roe v. Wade. And, you know, particularly on Roe v. Wade, we touched on, they touched on it a bit last night. You know, this is an issue where seven in 10 Americans actually believe Roe v. Wade should remain law and that abortion should not be criminalized. Women should not be criminalized. Doctors should not be criminalized. So I think there is a, a way for her to have that conversation uh, in a way that for a lot of, you know, these moderate uh, college-educated white women, the sort of holy grail of 2018 and this election, you know, these are some of those same voters. They do not consider themselves pro-choice, but they certainly don't think that Roe v. Wade should, become, should be illegal. And so I think there is a potential to, to use that issue in a positive. I think she also needs to be mindful, as I expect she will. And you saw the vice president try to do this last night. One of the things we've seen from the right is to try to suggest somehow that Democrats are attacking Amy Coney Barrett uh, on religious grounds and for her faith, which is absolute nonsense. Uh, and you saw Senator Harris kind of push back pretty firmly on that last night. I mean, there again, I think, I hope all the Democrats are very mindful. I think that needs to be part of her role. And again, I think part of what she did last night that I hope she will do in these hearings is she's there to be a champion for the American people. I mean, some of her best moments last night when she was talking about, like you mentioned, you know, if you've got a pre-existing condition, they're coming for you. That sort of passion was a passion for the people, right? And so I think if her role in this is to um, raise the concerns about Amy Coney Barrett's record in ways that are about concern for the people and not to get distracted or into the sort of weeds of, you know, too many of the specifics about things in her record and keep it to the big issues. Again, healthcare being so top of mind for people. And particularly, again, I'll go to black and brown voters for whom it really is life and death if they lose their healthcare. I think that is, is a win. Um, the second piece that, that I will say is I think Lindsey Graham is beside himself with glee to, to have these hearings. And I think he thinks it's going to be potentially a game changer for him, something that he needs, frankly, in his race in, in South Carolina. I'm not so sure 
that it does uh, necessarily do that for him. Mike, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, there's danger in these hearings for the Democrats. First of all, things are going well. They don't need a big anything to happen. Every day where very little happens is a great day for the Biden campaign. Now, the politics of the votes that it's different in the Senate versus the uh, the presidential because the Senate is more based on distribution and there are differences between states. But nationally, if Trump's biggest political problem since the beginning, but manifested in 2018, is he's getting murdered in the suburbs by women, white women who went to college, a big pro-life, pro-choice fight is not going to move the needle back to Trump. So generally, that litigation is, is, a, is a good issue for Biden. The better issue, because it cuts into working class white women, is the issue of losing your pre-existing conditions in your insurance. That is like a laser sword. There are a lot of former Republican congressmen from 2018 who can tell you all about that. It was the number one topic of Democratic attack ads that were successfully deployed in 2018. Now, the mistake the Dems can make, and on, on Hacks on Tap, a podcast I do with David Axelrod, we had Claire McCaskill on uh, earlier this week, and to her credit, because uh, it's painful in either party to break from the herd, uh, she, she made a good point, which was if we put on a lot of dumb street theater and we're running up and down the halls screaming, wearing handmaiden costumes and chanting ourselves to walls and virtue signaling till the walls shake, this is not good. This is not good. It has to be a respectful process. Amy Coney Barrett, whether or not you're a liberal or conservative, is a very impressive person of real accomplishment. I'm a conservative. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the same terror uh, about her that others would be. And uh, the, the Roe v. Wade issue is a little more complicated than kind of the baseball one team versus another. There are issues of constitutional law involved. But if the tone is the tone that Dianne Feinstein took when Comey Barrett was uh, confirmed for the, the not Supreme Court, but the lesser judgeship, which was kind of sneering with a very secular point of view at her about her faith, that is a bad mistake, and that is a home run win for Joni Ernst in Iowa, which is a slightly pro-choice state, but almost 50-50. And Lindsey Graham has got a surprisingly tough race against Jamie Harrison down in South Carolina. So, you know, I, I don't I, – I, let me put it this way. Mike Pence had a swarmy, offensive, and occasionally somewhat bullying tone, and it, it hurts him. It is also possible for female senators to have a bullying or ineffective tone. Occasionally in the past, I've seen that from Kamala Harris. I don't think she intends it. I don't think anybody really, maybe Pence kind of made it part of his calculus last night and it was a huge mistake. So the crusading senator barking at the witness thing, which is a stereotype in both parties. I mean, Lindsey Graham can caterwale to great annoyance in tone. I would encourage all of them to be quiet. I think one of the smarter moves for Kamala Harris, who's coming off a good debate in a winning campaign, is understand when in doubt she can always say, Senator Klobuchar, what do you have to say? Because Amy's very good, and she has dialed right in at that soccer mom vote uh, that the Democrats are winning the campaign with. So if I were Kamala, I would lead a team and not try to be a solo practitioner, and I would not try to win the whole damn campaign in these hearings because there's real danger there. Um, the less focus on the hearings in many ways, the better. I think that's exactly what the Democrats will do. I think it's exactly what Kamala Harris will do. Last night, she was emphasizing pre-existing conditions and the potential of the court striking down the Affordable right. Care Act. But instead of going on and giving my views at length, I think we're going to open this up to questions. Mike, do you have some questions there? Yes, I am the quiz master, but first, there's a quick commercial, and next time Bob's doing the commercial. First of all, a special thanks to our partners at the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival, uh, who are wonderful folks and are helping us with a lot of cool stuff we're doing. And second, if you dig these Zoom calls and many of the other things we do at the center, including help kids get life-changing internships, experience on real campaigns. We bring in tremendous fellows. You can learn about all of that on our website. Consider becoming 
a member of the Center Leadership Circle, which is kind of our elite group of supporters. Your tax-deductible gift really makes a difference to keeping all these programs that we do afoot, alive, and expanding, which uh, is really important in a time when politics is a little broken and we have to do some rebuilding, particularly on the right, my side. I mean, I'm renting Joe Biden. I ain't buying. I'm a conservative. But there's a time to repair the right and the kind of civil dialogue uh, that we talk about at the center is really important to help the next generation of politicians and students and activists uh, kind of learn to get back to a politics where we disagree, but we don't, we can be opponents, not enemies. With that, I'm going to go to our first question. Let, oh, my screen is moving. We have more questions. All right. The first, oh, this is a good one. Uh, this is anonymous too. <laughs> Uh-oh. I saw this. I, I, I didn't bring it up because, uh, well, you guys will have an opinion that I can chime in. Pollster, pollster, Frank Luntz, monitored 15 undecided voters from eight battleground states through the debate, uh, and you reported the results on Fox. He says those voters found Harris, quote, abrasive and condescending, and that on persona, it was Mike Pence's night. Do you think that those undecided voters have a point? Does Biden have that same problem? Do you think liberals are often too condescendingly, act too condescendingly toward conservatives? And I'll throw that to Bob first, and then uh, Karen can back clean up. I will just say that I do know that the Democratic dial groups last night were not particularly great for either of them. Uh, but in the second half of the debate, she showed market improvement. Yeah. Uh, look, the, the only conservative I ever condescend to is Mike. Uh, <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> uh, Every day. In, in fact, I grew up in a tradition in Washington in all the years I lived there where uh, you could come to our house and you could have the Democratic Speaker of the House uh, at the dinner table and you could have uh, Bob Novak, the conservative columnist. Uh, as for that data, it seems to be contradicted by almost all the other data we have, the polling on who won the debate, the general reaction to the debate. Uh, so I, I, just, I just think it's wrong. But I, I don't think liberals condescend to conservatives. I think there's some condescension on both sides, and I think it's bad. And one of the things we're trying to do at the center is get past that so that we can disagree with each other, but we can respect each other and we can respect the truth. Bob's right. They condescend to everybody, but that's a whole, we're having, we're having a civil debate about that sometime. <laughs> Karen, what, what do you say? Straighten us out here. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I will go to your use of the air quotes when you said pollster uh, and say that that kind of says it all. I question the methodology there, and I'd be curious to know a little bit more about who those individuals were. And as Bob said, I think all the other uh, data points uh, contradict that pretty strongly. I mean, it's pretty, you know, look, I think, let me just say this, though, uh, and I alluded to this earlier. As women and as a woman of color, one of the things that Kamala carried into that room was an understanding of the way women are perceived, right? Likeability and by the way, the things that go to whether or not a woman is considered likable is her lipstick, her earrings, her hair, her clothing. I can, you know, having worked with a lot of women candidates, I can tell you. And so, and she knew that. And I'm not, you know, it's not fair and it's not right, but it just is. And so we deal with it. And as women and as women of color, we have to navigate a lot of spaces. And there are times when I could tell she was holding back. And frankly, I think she was doing that specifically because she was aware of the stereotypes of being perceived as, you know, an angry black woman or, you know, a this or a that. And so uh, I obviously take a different view. I don't, I think she came off, I think she had to f thread the needle and find a way to stand her, you know, kind of press her point and make clear that she wasn't going to let the vice president just roll over her. Uh, and I think she, she did that quite well and quite effectively. And again, if you consider that he interrupted both she and Susan Page 40 times, I think if you watch that video, it's going to be hard to say that she was, you know, obnoxious or condescending. But I'll just make a quick statement about the Democratic Party and both parties in general. One of the things that I would like to see our party do more of, and I worked at the DNC, as Bob mentioned, under Howard Dean, and we had the 50-state strategy. And the whole point of that was 
to be out there talking to voters and talking to Americans all the time. Because when Democrat, when we're not there, somebody else is defining who we are. And I do think our party has, to some degree, gotten away from that. And I think there are plenty of recent elections, Stacey Abrams being one of them, that shows that when you put the energy and the time in to talk to voters about what matters to them, they will turn out. I think we, we you know, too many practitioners have these stereotypes about who low propensity voters are. And sometimes we do talk down to folks. And, you know, there are plenty of studies that show in the aftermath, when you go back and you ask people why they didn't vote, a lot of times what they'll say is, well, nobody asked me, nobody reached out to me. So I I think that's something we all have to recognize and own that if we're going to change the nature of the dialogue, we've got to include more people in the conversation. Yeah, I, I would just chime in and it's sort of a defense, I guess, of Frank, who prefers to be called the word doctor. Any televised focus group is bunk, in my view. And I don't believe the instant polls afterward, because there's just not a lot. of It's all about speed, not good results. So I'd be careful. The only question is, it doesn't matter what grumpy old white guys like me think about Kamala Harris, to be honest, because this campaign is about women killing off Trump. Men are tied, and that's the disadvantage for Trump. So the question is, did other women approve or disapprove in a way of such magnitude it might change the race? And there's no evidence so far, we're no really more in a couple of days, that any of that happened. So what guys may think was a, quote, wrong tone, you know, that's not where the race is now. So that's not the perception that matters. Now, question from Kathy Tile. The Republicans have taken a bit of a hit in elections since 2016. But they have been able to fill a large, and particularly 2018, they have been able to fill a large number of judgeships, which many think is much more significant. Please comment. I just briefly say that when you got majority, you got power to pick judges. And that's what's happening. And uh, my, my friend Axelrod and Bob's friend, and I'm sure your friend too, you know, after we fill them with liquor, will admit that except for the Merrick Garland hypocrisy thing, if the Democrats were in the same situation, they'd probably try to jam a Supreme Court judge if they had a late majority too. Because as the questioner kind of postulates, the stakes are very high because ideologically judges really count. And well, I'll just add, because I want to get to some more questions. If Biden wins and Democrats take the Senate, they're going to move judges through as fast as possible. Uh, They'll, they'll do the same thing Republicans have been doing. Uh, It's a shame that we've reached the point where judgeship appointments and appointments to the Supreme Court have become so profoundly ideological. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower in 1956, and it wasn't election year, but he said to his attorney general, I want to appoint a Democrat to the court. I don't want to just appoint Republicans. And he ended up appointing a very liberal New Jersey Supreme Court justice, uh, William Brennan, who went on to become one of the legendary figures in the Supreme Court. And, uh, and I think Eisenhower would probably have disagreed with a lot of what he did. I would just really quickly say that I think one of the things that the right has done better than Demo- the Republicans, better than Democrats, is to make an issue of judges and the courts. Uh, and, and I think one of the things about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing and this Supreme Court nomination being rushed through, I think it has heightened for people who might not usually pay attention to the importance of judges, right? It's always kind of a insider erudite conversation in elections, but not one that really moves a lot of votes. I think now we, I hope that particularly when we're able to connect it so directly to the, to healthcare, people will uh, start to see it as more of a voting issue. We know our friend Brian Fallon running Demand Justice is trying to uh, actually, you know, show people why these lower court judgeships really matter. The last thing I'll mention is certainly Color of Change has done a lot of work, particularly in the black community, around the importance in terms of criminal justice reform. Some of these judgeships, and particularly elected judges, can matter uh, quite greatly in terms of changing the attitude about the importance of judges and judgeships. All right. We have a question about mail-in ballots, but I think we kind of covered that. Yes, you can trust them, but vote earlier. Give the post office a little breathing room. And track them if you can. If, you, if you're in a state where if you vote early, you can track your mail yeah, right. and do it. Okay, let's see. So next one, this is from Anonymous again. <laughs> or another Anonymous. Biden has tons of momentum and money and polling advantages. It seems like he's going to win. With your extensive experience in presidential campaigns, 
what advice would you give Team Trump to pull off a victory when from looks like his path to defeat? Bob, you're a closet Trumper. What do you think? <laughs> if, I know you got a red hat there somewhere. If asked, if ask, I would say uh, I have no advice. Uh, look, let me give you a thought experiment. Uh, if when COVID had hit uh, and was coming, Trump had called a press conference had said, we have this virus. We're going to do everything we can to keep it out of the country. We probably won't succeed. It's very dangerous. We're going to pursue a vaccine as quickly as possible. We're going to pursue therapeutics as quickly as possible. And I personally am going to spend every day in the Oval Office working on this. I am canceling my rallies. This is going to be my focus. Uh, you will be uh, briefed every day by Deborah Bricks and Tony Fauci. Uh, and together, we as Americans will beat this. He would be in a very different place right now. Could he have that kind of transformation now? I don't think so. I mean, maybe the last chance was when he himself got sick and he could have come out of the hospital and said, look, it's a terrible disease. It's, it's awful. I'm so grateful that, that I appear to be beating it. Uh, I want to ask people to wear masks. I want to ask them to social distance. But I just don't think he's capable of doing that. Yeah. Remember the pivot? Do you guys remember that way back when, four years ago? We were still waiting on that pivot that was going to happen. No, he, he, he doesn't have it in him. And look, I think the other, I think you're exactly right, Bob. And it goes to something uh, that Mike said, and that is, you know, there, those folks in the middle, uh, uh, those voters in the middle, you know, one of the things that I hear in focus groups is people are just exhausted. They're exhausted. And they just, you know, people will say things like, you know, I thought he would shake things up, but this isn't what I meant. And COVID has added such an added layer that if they felt like he has a plan and they don't blame him for it. So I think there again, he could have benefited from that if people felt like, well, gee, it wasn't his fault, but he's sure trying hard to, you know, work through the problem. I think he would be in a much different place than he is. But he's decided very clearly to, you know, double, triple, quadruple down on this particular strategy. David Blessing, and I apologize if I murdered your name, David, uh, do you feel that the Lincoln Republicans have been effective in swaying Republicans to vote for Biden and to what extent? Um, I'll just say that I think they're more effective at getting Democrats excited because um, uh, they, they run really hard that are emotionally very satisfying to Dems. So I'm glad they're doing it. And they also drive Trump crazy. But uh, I, I think that that's my take and based on the ads I've tested. Mike, talk about Republican voters against Trump. Well, so, yeah. you know, uh, we're all brothers and sisters in the Republicans who can't stand Trump for, I'm part of Republican voters against Trump, rvet.org. Bill Crystal, Sarah Longwell, Tim Miller, and I are uh, the, the troublemakers behind. And we've been doing something called a permission campaign. We, you can see these on the website. We've got over 850 real Republicans who've made ads kind of like this on Zoom about why they can't do it anymore. And a few famous ones like um, some of the whistleblowers who came out of the administration, Olivia from the NSC, General Hayden, who did a great spot. And that stuff all blows up, gets 200 million uh, votes on Twitter. But we take the best ads and we test them and we put them on digitally in Michigan, Arizona, the key states, trying to peel Republicans. Our messaging is very narrow at that. It's not the Trump Satan. It's so Republicans can see other Republicans saying, you know what, I'm still a conservative, but not this time. And then we're running a big multi-million dollar campaign at independent voters and soft suburban Republicans to beat Trump in Florida. Because you beat them there, you got them. Uh, you only need one other state. So uh, that's why I chose to be of our vet because I I like the effectiveness. But look, I'm happy Lincoln is a, a Republicans again a, attacking Trump. Uh, and I think a lot of their advertising does help Democrats get worked up, which is good. Uh, you have anything on that, Karen? You want me? We got a few more and the clock is ticking. Yeah, let's go for more questions. All right. Tim Murtaugh, great name. Mr. Murphy, love hacks on tap. Thank you. Just voted in person early in Hamilton County, Ohio. So your vote is more important than any of ours. <laughs> Hamilton County is a fulcrum uh, in, in, in Ohio. It is uh, the Cincinnati area. And it's, it's one of the very, it's one of the, I'd say 50 most important counties in American politics for a presidential. So you are a powerful voter, sir. Um, anyway, voted early in Hamilton County, Ohio, large crowd, including in person, drive up, drop off. Good. Are there any data or empirical evidence that suggests an uplifting event uh, could occur on 
election night, massive turnout. I'm not sure what we mean by uplifting event. Bob, you're an uplifting guy. What do you think? Well, I think we're going to see the biggest turnout that we've seen since 1960, which in the modern era is the high watermark for turnout. I think we get 63, 64% of people could be turning out. Uh, I don't, I think that actually all of the talk from the president and the, the Trump campaign uh, that appears to indicate that in the name of making sure the election is honest, they want to make sure some people don't vote is going to create a greater incentive for people to vote. I was amazed looking at uh, one of the remote vote sites uh, in, I think it was Ohio, where people were around the block, around the block, around the block, uh, waiting three and four hours to vote. I think that the, 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 the language that indicates that somehow or other this election is going to be illegitimate, I think motivates people to vote. 100% we're also seeing that, particularly with black voters, because this feeling of, you know, we have fought and died for this right to vote. Um, and you're trying to, he's trying to take it away, particularly in the spirit of John Lewis. I think that really is resonating with people and really sitting with people. Um, and we're also seeing, interestingly enough, I think you're going to see big turnout, I agree, in person and early vote, as we're already uh, starting to see, because people just feel so determined that they're going to, you know, they're going to... Uh, Simone Sanders on the campaign has a great line, you know, mask it up or mail it in. And I think that's what we're seeing, you know, people really taking that to heart. And this message about making a plan. I think people are really resonating with, okay, I want to make sure I know what I'm doing, where I'm going um, to try to, you know, undermine the efforts to sow confusion. Uh, just a little news leak here from uh, the Center for the Political Future. Uh, keep an eye on digital media because some um, some wonderful people without a partisan bent are going to be providing food trucks for people waiting in line. It's going to be announced soon in some of these early voting precincts that have the long lines. I plan to reinforce that spirit by voting nine or 10 times just to be able to hit nine or 10 great food trucks. <laughs> I do think there are going to be efforts like that. Um, Which are great. Know, Democracy. Exactly. Food, pizza, music, helping people stay in line and, you know, bring your folding chair if you have to. So we're going to do two final mega quick questions because we're down to our last three minutes. So let's all try to do our fastest answer. For Mark Donahue, how will the absence of at least one presidential debate affect Joe Biden's strategy? Bob? Well, first, it's not clear there will be any other presidential debates because uh, Trump's campaign manager, Bill Stepien, uh, just demanded that they move both debates back a week. And the Biden people's response was, we agreed to what the commission has, has uh, offered, and we're sticking to it. So I think there may be no more debates, which means, by the way, that our next election R&D on Friday, October 16th, won't be about a debate because there's not going to be a debate on the 15th. Uh, yeah, I agree about no debate on the 15th, though. I think the commission may agree to two later debates because Trump, for once, has a legitimate excuse. He's got COVID. Uh, Karen? Well, Bill has COVID too. I mean, you know, I guess we'll see. I, I don't think, look, in, in this moment, I don't think another debate is, is necessarily, um, I think, a, the, well, I'll say it this way. I think the town hall debate would be beneficial to Joe Biden because I think he connects better with voters. Um, but I, if I, frankly, if I was working for Donald Trump, I would not want him in another debate. <laughs> would not, I did not think he benefited at all, nor did he bring in any new voters uh, from that debate. And I think for, for Vice President Biden, it's kind of, it kind of goes to what you were saying before, Mike. Keep, just keep doing what you're doing and just, you know, you're on a trajectory to win. Keep yourself on that path. It's a tricky call because normally debates are an opportunity for the candidate who's behind to do something to change the race. So normally the Trump people would kill for debates, although his staff is probably worried. They don't count because they don't decide. And if you're Biden campaign, you're delighted to have no more debates. So we'll see. But I think the commission may take away Biden's cover on that. And he might have to in the end if Trump can pass certain independent objective medical testing. All right, last question from John Lindstrom. In 2016, voters liked the quote, he says what he believes, unquote, from Trump. Now he swings and sways every day. Will this change independent voters to Biden-Harris? I'll just say I think it already has. But yeah. go ahead. Who, who wants to go first? No, I was about, go ahead. That, that, that's no actually... interrupting, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm yielding. We, we know. We know what trouble 
That's right. Um, hey, look, I think from what I'm hearing from voters themselves, again, in focus groups, I think that's exactly what has happened is people felt like, again, they say, I thought he might shake things up, but this is not what I meant. This is not what I wanted. And certainly the they recognize, I think the divisiveness has really worked against him. We know that's hurt him with uh, college educated women, certainly. I think, you know, when people feel like they can't have their child watch a debate without crying, I mean, I colleague of mine, you know, their child, their 13 year old was too upset to continue to watch. I mean, you know, all of these things that have built up over, uh, over time, I think independent voters are recognizing that, you know, it, it, it's like, it's kind of like what you said, Mike, they might rent Joe Biden, even if they're not, you know, going to, they're necessary, they're not going to be Democrats, but I think they recognize the need that we have to stop the bleeding of what is happening uh, in this moment. Yep, they're ready for a change. Um, I only cry when I listen to AOC's economic plan. And with that, <laughs> last conservative uh, thrust, thank you so much, Karen Finney, for joining us. Bob, thank you. I have an announcement from the magnificent Erica who runs the joint. The Galen Center at USC will be open for voting starting on October 30th and through Election Day, November 3rd. We'll see about getting the food. Uh, truck there, or you can drop off your mail-in ballots there. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you at the next election R&D Dialogue. Thank you. Friday, October 16th at noon. Probably no debate, but hopefully an interesting discussion. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture, Facebook, and YouTube, and visit our website for upcoming programs.